Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Well, if you have a, a Bible with you, um, or you got one of them newfangled Bibles on your, um, your mobile device, please turn with me to Ephesians, uh, and we're going to be reading from chapter 2. And if you're not so familiar with, with the Bible just yet, um, that's okay. We're going to teach you a little bit about that. Uh, Ephesians is actually in the New Testament, and it is, a, it is the book that's found between Galatians and Philippians. So it goes Galatians, Ephesians, and Philippians. So Ephesians chapter 2, and we are going to begin reading from verse 1, and it reads, um, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this World, following the prince of the power of the air, the, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are actually really excited and glad that you're here with us this morning. And uh, I want to welcome you back to um, our series titled The Lies That We Believe. And we are actually in part two of this series. And if you were not here last week, I'm going to tell you, you really missed a lot. In fact, in a few minutes, we're going to actually take a few minutes and we're going to quickly review what we talked about um, last week in order to kind of frame what we're going to deal with today. But if you missed last week, then you're really going to need to listen to part one of this series. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to fully grab a hold of where we're going today in the next few weeks because we, we talked about a lot of stuff last week that was really foundational to where we're going today and where we're going in the coming weeks. And so I want to encourage you to either go, do one of two things. Go to our church website. It's fbcboron.org um, and click the sermon tab. Or you can go to our SoundCloud page and you can listen to it there. SoundCloud is actually a, a social media platform for audio files. It's really easy. You just, uh, you, you just, you just click on that. Uh, the, the, the address is in your uh, bulletin, and you can actually even subscribe, and that way you never miss a message. And um, both the addresses are in your uh, bulletin. So um, if you missed last week, then please uh, take the time to listen. Now, as I said last week, we kicked off this series by talking about the fact that in our culture right now, and in Christianity at large, we are facing a perfect storm. And what we're talking about is the fact that Orthodox Christianity, the historic Orthodox Christian faith, it is now firmly and it is now visibly in the minority in America. And that means that most people do not hold to a foundational, to the foundational doctrines and teachings.
teachings that were handed down by the church and by the apostles themselves. In fact, a growing number of people who claim to follow Christ now believe in doctrines and teachings that are not rooted in the Bible itself, but instead are rooted in other things like postmodern philosophy. And, And as we talked about and there are a number of things that contribute to that fact, okay? Like the fact that we have a tendency to believe things that are simply false. And we demonstrated that there are lots of things that we believe as individuals to be true that are simply false. Like most people believe that Napoleon was short, but the historical facts are he wasn't. He was actually above average height for someone who was in France. Also, most people believe that you only use 10% of your brain, which again is not the scientific truth. Science has proven that you you use much more than 10% of your brain. But the fact is there are lots of things that we believe that are not true. And And it goes for history. It goes for science. It goes for psychology. It even goes for matters of faith. And we talked about that the internet, um, hasn't changed that. In fact, it's actually kind of made it worse because there's so much unfiltered information out there that people are now believing more things that are not true. And, and, and to make things worse than that, we take in the account of, of our culture's view of truth. Okay, The fact is our culture's view of truth really isn't always true. Right? Oftentimes, the, 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 our culture has a perspective of truth that is really twisted to fit an ideology or, uh, or propaganda or a political agenda. Like right now in our culture, all you have to do is, to, for someone who, that you don't like, all you have to do is say publicly enough time that that person's a racist. And, and whether or not they are racist or not, it suddenly becomes true in the eye of our culture. Perception and rhetoric have become what has been replacing reality. Our, our, our culture views truth, but it's not always true. And then you add to it that the influence of postmodern philosophy, which says that truth is relative, that there's no objective standard for truth um, around us, that mo- postmodern uh, uh, philosophy tells us that, that, that truth is about our subjective experiences and our subjective thoughts, which means the truth is what you decide for it to be. Okay, what's true for you might not necessarily be true for me, which dovetails really, really tightly with this me centered culture that we find ourselves in. Okay, our culture tells us life is about me. It's about what I want, it's about what I want to do, it's about what I think, what I feel. It's about me expressing my authentic self. And then you combine that with a biblically illiterate population, which means most people do not know what's in the Bible, including many Christians. And then you add to that a theologically weak church. It's no wonder that the majority of Christians don't actually hold to classic Orthodox Christian beliefs. Instead, uh, people either uh, consciously or subconsciously, they subscribe to a belief system uh, that that many people think is Christian, but it's not. And this belief system has been identified as moralistic, therapeutic deism. It is absolutely a mouthful. Moralistic, therapeutic deism, uh, which is essentially the belief that Christianity is about being a good person and, and being good to people and pursuing your dreams with the help of God. Okay, in fact, the, the five core beliefs of moralistic therapeutic deism are God exists who created and orders the world and watches over life on earth. God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Um, and, and that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself and that God is not involved in my life except when I need God to resolve a problem and that, God, that good people go to heaven when they die. That is what the majority of people believe about Christianity today. Now, later this week... Uh, uh, now, now last thing, the last thing that we talked about last week um, 
we, we, we spent a lot of time on moralistic therapeutic deism. And what we, what we explained was, is that this is not just the belief of, of the common men in America. This is the belief of a majority of Christians in America, especially adolescents and young teen adults. Okay? And we spent, like I said, a lot of time talking about it last week um, and how it's become the dominant belief system. And we also talked a lot about how it's not the gospel. These five points, though they might sound good, are not the gospel. And we talked about how this is affecting the church and our culture at large. And as I said, you need to listen to last week's message to fully understand what we're talking about as we move forward. But the one thing that you need to keep in mind and the one thing you need to come to terms with is how moralistic therapeutic deism, how it became such a prevalent belief system in the church. It became such a prevalent belief system in the church is because we, our Christian culture, forgot an important lesson. And the important lesson is this, theology matters. That's what we forgot. Somewhere in our Christian culture, we stopped teaching a robust foundational Christian theology, a theology that, 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 we, that, that we know about God. We stopped teaching a deep foundational theology that actually anchors our entire belief system to what the word of God actually teaches. And because of that, the church in America has become about gimmicks. It's become about entertainment and consumerism and, and scratching our itching ears and, and making us feel better about ourselves. Uh, the church has become about my personal tastes and my personal likes and dislikes. The church at large has become about trying to attract more numbers of people instead of actually helping people to grow in their spiritual maturity in Christ. It became about attendance rather than transformation of lives. And as a result, much of our belief system became focused on us instead of on God where it's supposed to be. And the consequences have been a weakening of our Christian culture. And so last week, we as a church, we decided to commit ourselves um, and we decided to commit ourselves as a congregation to learning and to teaching a robust foundational orthodox theology. And again, this theology is simply what we believe, okay? Theology means what we, what we study about God, what we believe about God, okay? And we committed to laying a deep theological foundation for our faith. And we committed to put God and his glory first in our theology and God first in our personal lives. And uh, where we began last week was to affirm really... Two foundational anchor points for our theological foundation. They are, number one, the Bible is the inherent, I mean, the inerrant, um, infallible, authoritative word of God. And number two, God is absolutely sovereign over all creation. That is where we started. That's the starting point of, 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 of our, our theological foundation. The Bible is God's word. It's the way we get to know him. And God himself is completely sovereign over every single aspect of all of creation. And everything was created for him. It wasn't created for us. It was for him and his glory. And, and, this, and it's this, uh, these two anchor points that we, we need to actually begin to attach all that we understand about God. Everything we understand about God must be connected to these teachings in theology. Everything we believe about God must be rooted in these two truths. The Bible is God's word and that God is completely sovereign. Everything we believe must be attached or otherwise we're going to lose the anchor points and it will cause us to drift around and become vulnerable to different types of doctrines and untruths. And so 
That's where we left off last week. Now this week, we're going to look at another common uh, untruth that many people believe, and they just assume for it to be true. In fact, I think that most people believe it. And I would even be willing to say that some of you right now probably believe this particular myth to be true. And, and this lie, though, though it, it does show up in moralistic therapeutic deism, it's actually more than that. In fact, it's actually uh, one of the things that's at the root of that false belief system. And more than that, it's at the root of a false belief system that's been floating around since for about 1,500 years. And when I say root, I mean, I, I'm seriously talking about the roots because like we've, we've talked about, What's happening is that there's something missing in a foundational theology for this lie to exist. There's something missing in the way that the, way the world and the church understands and allows this kind of, of, of lie to persist. And so to make it worse, our culture, because of its march towards tolerance... And, and you know, I mean, intolerance for tolerance sake and because of the influence of postmodern thought and because of our obsession with individualism, our culture, including our institutions such as government and education and our media complex, they are very big promoters of this particular lie. And because of that, then this lie has a huge amount of influence over all of our lives. It's virtually universally accepted as truth. In fact, I'd be willing and confidently to state that this is a lie that we have all embraced at some point in our lives. I know that I have many points in my life and this lie may be something you believe right now. Okay. And I believe that that some of you uh, probably hold on to that and make no mistake though. All right. This this viewpoint, whether you believe it or not, is actually a lie. Okay? It, might, it might be very subtle and seemingly innocuous, right? but it's a lie nonetheless that's very, that has a potential for, for danger. Um, because, because to believe this lie, to believe this particular myth is to deny something very important about our foundational faith. And the lie is, is that many people believe is that people are basically by their nature good. It's the idea that people are naturally good, that somehow people are born good. Okay? That's what most people believe. People, they believe that people are basically good. Everyone is born good. It's just that they're born into an evil world. They believe that it's the world that makes people wicked or bad. It's the world around them that stains them and scars them. It's the world around them that teaches them to do bad things. It's the world and society that makes people bad because people start off basically good. How many, how many of you at some point have believed that people are basically good, right? Okay, some of you might still believe that, okay? And I can see how a person can believe that because I used to believe it myself, all right? But, but, but this, is, this is what our culture teaches. It teaches, it's, we're taught that in the movies, okay? The art teaches us this. It's what we're taught by progressivism and even socialism. We're, we're told that, that good people are born into a cold, dark, oppressive world with oppressive societies and broken families and failing institutions who really don't care about people anyway, that, that for some reason this world's about conformity and the world is shaping helpless souls into the mold of society. That's what we're told. And that's why people believe that, that serial killers are made and not born. And why people believe that criminals are not bad people. They're just victims of bad circumstances. That's why people, a lot of people don't believe that real evil even exists. That's why people believe that, that if, if, if you will just love enough and educate enough and if you will give enough and nurture enough and understand enough, that people will just simply turn out good. That's why people be, they believe that. As our government is built on that. Our educational system is predicated on that, that falsehood. 
That if you will just do enough good things to enough, good, enough people that the world will change and people will begin to live in this utopian society. That the world would become instantly better if you would just teach people to be the good people that they naturally are. That world peace is impossible if you remove the bad influences out of the world and allow good people to be good. Okay. That's what culture tells us. That if we get rid of all the bullies and, and we will begin to re-educate people who say hurtful things and if we will keep people from offending each other, then good people will be allowed to flourish. As but as long as we have these oppressive constructs like religion and families and gender and sexuality and financial status, good people will be oppressed and forced to act evil. They believe that people are just good by nature. All right? It's just the world that makes them bad. And, and, and most of us on some level believe that, okay? I mean, how many of you have ever said, I'm a good person? Come on, don't lie. All right, yeah. I think we've all said that, right? I'm a good person. Oh, yeah, she's a good person. He's a good person, right? right? I mean, I think we've all said that. And somewhere we want to believe, I think, that we ourselves are good people, right? We just want to believe that people are basically good. And we certainly want to believe that about our own kids. I can't tell you how many times I've watched the news and you've seen a story about some teenage child or adult child who's done a, done a terrible act of crime. And his parents go, you know, I know he did something wrong, but he's still a good kid. Right? Right? I mean, and we do the same thing with our own kids, too. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, you know, our kids get in trouble at school and we're like, yeah, they made a mistake. Right? It's just a mistake. They're, they're still good kids. Right? She's still a good person. I mean, if it wasn't for what that other kid did, my kid wouldn't have done nothing wrong. You know what I mean? He's still a good kid. Hey, we want people to, we want to believe that our children and our grandchildren are born naturally good, right? And, and that's, what, that's what we just want to believe. And, and, but let me just put my cards out on the table for you. Let me just kind of just lay it right out here. It's a lie. It's a simple lie, right? People are not basically good. People are not born good. People don't start off good and then turn bad, okay? And that includes me. That includes you. That includes your, your children and your precious grandchildren, Okay, the simple truth is people are not inherently good. They're inherently wicked. We are born wicked. Now, now hear me. I'm not saying that we're not capable of good things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that we don't at times do good things. I'm not saying that everything we do is bad. All right? I'm not saying that, 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 that there are people who, that, that aren't, there aren't people worse than us. Because there are. You know, and, and by comparison, you know, we are good people. Right? And I'm not saying that, that we're not capable of love or acts of kindness. What I'm saying is that we need not to fool ourselves. And what we need to do is accept the truth that we by our nature are wicked. There's something deep inside of us that actually acknowledges that truth. And the word of God bears testimony to that. In fact, Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 3. He says, as it is written. So this is already a truth that he knew. right? As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Nobody's righteous. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps is on their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. They, there is no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is born good. No one. We are all broken, all unrighteous. We are all wicked, every one of us. Now, if you're observant, you might say, well, wait a minute, Sherman. Hey, hang on. 
Those verses you just quoted don't mean we're born that way. They just mean that we ended up that way. I mean, it doesn't actually say that you were born, you know, wicked. And, and I'll admit that we're all sinners, but, but it doesn't actually mean that we're born that way. I mean, I still can't believe that people are born wicked. I believe that people are good by nature. It's our environment that corrupts people. We've seen it happen, right? That we become sinners through our choices and our interactions with the world and temptation, but we don't start off evil. Well, I'll tell you that, that much of the world would agree with you, including many, many Christians, there are many Christians who believe that people are born, they're born spotless and good. It's by their choices that they become sinners, that, that, that we sin you know, to, when we choose to do wrong. And by extension, then, that people believe that it's possible then, at least in theory, to make the right choices and never sin. Because if you're born good and it's your choices that make you sinful, then it's possible then to never actually make a sinful choice and, keep, and be born right with God and stay right with God with your entire life. Now, when confronted with this truth, you know, uh, most of these Christians will like let themselves off the hook by saying, well, you know, but it's never been done, right? I, I, I mean, you know, I mean, the reason is there's just so much corruption and temptation in the world that a person, you know, never actually got to make all the right choices, you know, from birth so that therefore they still need God's grace to help them along. We still need Jesus to save us, right? But ultimately people are still born good. You know, that's what they hold on to. Now, the reason why people believe this, okay, uh, and, you know, and, and believe me, this is a very dangerous lie, and we'll, we'll, we'll uncover that as we go. But the reason why people believe this lie is really, really very simple. For the world and for many Christians, there's an important piece of their foundational theology that is either flawed or either missing. There's something about what they know about God that is missing, right? There's something about our theology of God and man that's broken. Because if you believe that people are born good, you don't understand the word of God. You don't understand what it says. And you surely don't understand the, the God and his nature. And you certainly then don't understand your own nature, you see, if, 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 you see what, what is missing from most people, including those who profess to be Christians, is an accurate, robust theology of sin. It's, if you believe that people are basically good and that the world it is that corrupts them, then you really don't understand the doctrine of sin that's taught by the Bible. You don't have an accurate theology of sin. And that, my friends, is really the root of the problem. Okay, as we said last week, the reason why our culture and our institutions and the media see people as basically good um, is because of a broken and flawed understanding of mankind and a broken understanding of sin itself. And, and the reason why American, the, the American church has become fraught with parasitic beliefs such as moralistic therapeutic deism is because the church has failed to effectively teach this generation a clear doctrine on things like sin. And there's a reason why the church has failed to teach it. It's failed to teach it because people just don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear the ugly stuff about sin. We don't want to hear the bad news about the fact that we're broken. We don't want to hear uh, about the fact that God takes sin seriously. We don't want to hear about the fact that there are some of the activities in my life that are sinful and offensive to God and that I need to repent of those things. Instead, we want to we hear about grace and being kind and good to other people. We want to hear the five ways that Jesus is going to make my marriage better, right? We want to hear about how we can live a happier, more fulfilled life by following God. You know, we want to hear about how Jesus wants us to be nice to our neighbors and how Jesus wants us to be our own authentic selves. But we don't want to hear about the fact that we're all sinners. 
We don't want to hear about the fact that we're born that way. We don't want to hear the fact that we started our life spiritually dead, you know, and the best that we can offer God by our best behavior is but garbage in his sight. Those are the things that we don't want to hear. But it's precisely the things that we actually need to hear. This is precisely what the church needs to hear. We need to hear that, that you can't have the gospel and grace and love and mercy until we acknowledge and deal with our sin problem. We need to hear that if you are not actually born in sin, Jesus died for no reason. You have to come face to face with the fact that, that our understanding of theology and grace and of salvation is directly connected to our understanding and our theology of sin. We need to hear these things. And so... With that, that's exactly what we're going to hear today. Today, we're going to connect our thoughts to the word of God and the sovereignty of God, and we're going to fix this. We're going to do the hard work of growing our theological foundation by learning and embracing the doctrine and theology of sin, even if we don't want to hear it. Now, let me just give you a heads up, because there's two things I want you to understand, okay? Uh, First of all, this conversation might become uncomfortable if it's not uncomfortable already, all right? Okay, and, and, and so, so you might not want to hear some of these things, and that's okay, because our theology is not about our feelings. Our theology is about the Word of God and what it says. And so I'm going to ask you to do uh, a couple of things. Um, is first of all, is I want you to allow the Word of God to speak for itself, Okay. And I'm going to ask you then to commit then to align your worldview and your feelings with what the, world of God, with the, what, what the Word of God actually says rather than, than trying to align what God says with your feelings. The second thing I need you to know is that, that, that um, we're going to begin to talk about this subject today, but it's a really big, complex subject. And so we're going to cover some of the major high points, but not in great detail. It's like a th- 30,000 foot flyover, okay? And so I'm going to encourage you first of all to that, that, that as we talk, that, that, that understand that we're going to be talking about this more in the future. Second, commit yourself to learning more about this subject. And third, double check what I'm teaching you. You need to learn these things for yourself and own them. And not because I say so, but because the word of God says so. You need to take everything that I say and you need to test Everything I say by scripture itself, this doctrine is something you need to know and understand for yourself and become convinced of through your study. Now with that, let's talk about the foundational doctrine and theology of sin. And the reality is is that I think that we all kind of have an understanding, right, of what sin is. We all kind of know something about it. We understand that sin on some level is really us failing to do what God wants us to do or us doing the things that God says don't do, right? We kind of understand that, that, that sin is kind of a violation of, of God's law, right? That God said, don't covet, and guess what we do? We covet. He says, don't steal, and, you know, we do. We steal. And then God says, love your enemies, and, and we don't do that. And he says, you know, take care of the poor, and we somehow fail to do that as well. We know that, that at one facet of sin simply is, is, is about being disobedient to God, because the truth is, but, but, the, but understand that the truth is simply this, that, that, that sin is more complex than just us failing to do what we're told. Sin is actually at its root more of an act, more than an act of wrongdoing. It's a state of alienation with God. 
Okay? Sin is a ruptured personal relationship with God because sin at its core is a betrayal of trust. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden and they were given immense freedom to do what they wanted to do and the only commandment that was for them to abide by is not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God entrusted them with his vast creation and he gave them one command and they violated it. They violated his trust. And in that moment, they began to believe a lie that Satan was telling them. And they stopped believing the truth, which means sin is also unbelief or a lack of faith. And the result of that transgression and that disobedience and unbelief, the result of that is that their once close personal relationship with God, they were walking with him. Okay? Their close personal relationship with God was severed and they were alienated from God. This, and this had catastrophic consequences for them because Adam and Eve were moved from paradise and they were banned from God's living presence. Right? They, they, they were moved from God's life-giving presence and as a result, death entered the world, both physical death and spiritual death. Romans eleven twelve tells us, just as sin uh, came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. You see, death came into the world because of sin. And that sin and that death were spread not to some people, but to all people because we were all children of Adam and Eve. We inherited both the sin nature and their mortality, their physical death. And what we have to understand is that we were born physically alive and that one day we're going to die. But we were also born, all of us, spiritually dead. Spiritually dead, completely incapable of repairing that severed relationship with God. We cannot fix it or save ourselves. Now, this right here, this is the classical understanding. This is a classical understanding of sin um, and death in the Christian world from the very beginning. Adam and Eve sinned, right? And, and when they did, they developed a sin nature and that was passed on to their children. It's affected the entire human race. Every human being has been born a sinner from that time forward. And every human is born spiritually dead and every, born, every person is born wicked. That's the classical understanding of, of the Christian faith from the very beginning all the way up until about the 5th century. And then about 409, a British monk named Pelagius, he, be, he began to teach something that was different than that. You see, Pelagius just couldn't stomach the idea that people were born sinners. It seemed unfair to him. Okay? He just couldn't reconcile in his own heart the fact that people were born broken that we were born wicked. He just, he just felt that it was unfair. He also began to teach the idea that, that every soul <clears throat> is born unstained and completely innocent. And that it was, that it was Adam's sin that, it, that we didn't inherit that, right? That Adam's sin actually doesn't affect us in any way except to serve as an example of what not to do. Adam's sin was just an example of what not to follow. Pelagius also believed that sin had nothing to do with death. Okay. He believed that death was the natural order of things, that death isn't a sign of sin. And as a result, Adam would have died anyway, and, and, our, and our deaths were simply just a natural process, and, and that's that, that, that all things die, and that sin had nothing to do with that. Pelagius also believed that mankind was able to make himself right before God by his own effort, that he will just make the right choices and, and live a righteous life, that he can, he can save himself, Right? And that, that, that the reward for that effort then of living that kind of a life then was God's grace, 
right? That God's grace wasn't this, this unmerited thing, right? That was his theology, and it was called Pelagianism. Now, his views, okay, at that time were actually deemed heresy by the church, and his views were, were opposed by one of the church fathers named Augustine. And, and Augustine, he defended this classic view of sin, and in the process, Augustine helped to define our theology even better, and in fact, he introduced a concept that, that was actually there, but he kind of, kind of codified it and explained it. It's the doctrine of original sin. Okay? Augustine, with heavy support from Scripture, taught that we were born in sin and we are incapable of saving ourselves and making ourselves right before God because we are thoroughly, morally depraved. Okay? We were born that way. We were born into total depravity. Okay. And most importantly, because we were born that way and thoroughly depraved, then that means we were thoroughly and completely dependent upon not our own efforts and what we can do to save us, but we were completely dependent upon God and his grace to save us. And as a result of that, then salvation then becomes completely and totally an act of God's grace, that we have nothing to do with it. Otherwise, if we did do something, it wouldn't be grace. The idea is that God in his sovereignty is the one who initiates and provides the grace that we need to be saved. That we're incapable, completely incapable from the beginning of saving ourselves because we're spiritually born dead. We were born sinners. And this doctrine of original sin, right, this was a foundational doctrine of the church. Adam's sin nature is passed down from the beginning. And then that, that we, by our own natures, then are sinners by birth. And then not only that, we're complicit because we actually effectively, willfully sin as well. Which is exactly what the Bible is teaching us. In fact, look at, again at Ephesians chapter 2 and see what Paul says. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. You Again, we're spiritually dead. Okay, he's not talking about you were dead physically. Okay, he's talking to people that are alive. He's, ta he's talking about spiritual death, right? Your relationship is severed with God. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. What Paul is saying here is that you were dead spiritually dead in your trespasses. You were dead because of sin and you walked actively in those sins, doing them out of your own will. You were following the direction of the world that, that, was, that, that was leading you down a path, that you were following the direction of the devil. You were willingly, whether you knew it or not, following the devil's lead. <clears throat> I mean, think about this. How many of you have actually done things wrong while you were fully aware that what you were doing was wrong? Right? Okay. Yeah, we all have sinned that way. We have all been, been uh, willing participants in sin, right? Paul says we're dead in those trespasses and that we followed them, okay? And, and he said, and then among these, these, these things that we did, among them, we all, every one of us, once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body okay, and the desires of our mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this last part of this verse here, we really need to look closely at this, okay? Because in this text, this is the truth. This is the truth about who we are from God's own mouth, okay? It says, among whom, okay, Paul is referring to himself, okay, and us, and referring to all Christians. He says, among whom, right, 
we once lived with passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and mind. We did the things that, the, the sinful things that we wanted to from our mind and bodies. And we Christians <clears throat> were by nature children of wrath with the rest of mankind. We Christians were by nature like the rest of mankind. We were children of wrath. We were enemies of God. Our relationship was severed. We were at odds with God because we, like the rest of the world, were broken sinners. But we didn't simply just end up that way. We started out that way because notice the word here. It's nature in this text. He says we were by our nature children of wrath. All right? Like the rest of mankind, he says it's our nature. He says it's, it's nothing to do with what we learn from the world. It's our nature. We by our nature that way. And this word <coughs> that gets translated as nature into English in, in every translation in English, all right? this Greek word, this one here, which is pronounced phusis, kind of a weird word, right? Phusis. This word phusis carries with it an idea, not of just nature, but it also carries the idea of birth and origin or original nature. Okay. In essence, what Paul is saying is that you were born, you were born children of wrath. Okay. We started out that way. We're not inherently good people. We're not basically good people. We are children of wrath, deserving God's wrath. We were born sinners from birth. Okay, we, we, th that's the bad news, right? And this is the bad news we must absolutely come to terms with because that's what the Bible teaches us. We must come to terms with this because if you don't come to terms with this bad news, then the gospel doesn't make any sense because the good news is what Paul says next, right after this. He says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even, now look at this, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We were spiritually dead, okay, and then we were made spiritually alive. And this wasn't what we did. It wasn't what our own effort. It wasn't anything that we had to, anything to do with. We were made alive by what? By grace. By grace, you have been saved and, and, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Right? A, an undeserved, unearned gift of God. Not the result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, sin <clears throat> is universal. We are all sinners. It is also part of our inherited nature. We are by our natures sinners. Okay? And if it were not so, then our salvation would not then be by grace. It would be not a gift of God. It would be something that we had the ability to earn. It would be something that we'd have the ability to work for. It would be something we'd have the ability to participate in. But, but the word of God makes it clear that is not the case. That is not how it is. Now with that, <clears throat> there's still a lot of Christians who are going to hold on to their beliefs. And they're going to struggle with this doctrine of original sin. And they're going to struggle with the doctrine of total depravity, which says we're incapable of coming to God on our own because we're spiritually dead, totally depraved. 
Not to say that we're not capable of doing good deeds. It just says that we're incapable of being righteous enough before God, which means we're wholly dependent on God to save us. And a number of Christians are going to struggle with this idea, not because of its biblical nature, but because it bothers them that salvation is entirely by grace and entirely by God's choice. It's entirely God's work, which means we don't do anything to save ourselves. It is all God. And that bothers them. It bothers them to believe that, that somewhere in themselves that they, that they have nothing to do with their salvation, that they can't, they can't do it. They want to believe that, that they were not born sinners, that they became sinners. And because they weren't born sinners, they have the power to, instead to, to choose God instead of God having to choose us. But this understanding of sin actually has, allows them to be born again, to be born good, and have the ability to choose God is directly at odds. This, this teaching is directly at odds with the foundational theology that we find in the Bible and the foundational theology of the sovereignty of God. Because the idea that we are born good, is not biblical. You will not find out that in the Bible. Okay? And, and you're not going to find that anywhere. And the idea that, that we have the spiritual capacity to choose God on our own is not biblical either. Paul makes it clear. Remember, he says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks. No one understands. No one seeks God. No one seeks for God. We don't choose okay god it's an unbiblical idea it's completely god the idea that we were born good and can choose god is not found in the bible and it's it's in a direct conflict with the notion of god's total sovereignty god is completely sovereign over all creation including us and without him sending the holy spirit to awaken us spiritually without him working in our lives and giving us the gift of faith, we are completely hopeless. We are saved by God's sovereign grace. We are <coughs> born sinners, made righteous only through the blood of Christ. It has nothing to do with what we do. It is all God. Now, with that said, as I've mentioned, um, this is a brief look at this subject and this theology of sin. And there are many, 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 many more details to, uh, to, to, uh, to cover and explore. And, and, and some of you probably will have a lot of questions. And there will probably certainly be some objections. Because this subject is, is one of those that, that, that really um, can stir up our feelings and our emotions. Our feelings and emotions can get in the way of this. And we tend to want to bend our understanding of the Bible to our feelings rather than bending our feelings to a right understanding of God. And as I said, um, we're going to continue to look at this and talk more about this as time goes on. And, and I'm going to encourage you to use your questions and to use your thoughts and to use even your objections as a catalyst to really begin to study this out in Scripture. That's how you come to these conclusions. You see, my job as a pastor is not to rise above what the Word of God says. And believe me, there are some things that I read and some doctrines that I've, you know, I've come to terms with that I've struggled and go, Lord, does it have to be that way? Why is it that way? I don't like that. That, doesn't, that offends me. But ultimately, I don't, I don't bend the word of God to me. I bend my heart to the word of God. Okay? Because like I've said before, theology matters. Is there a theology of God and his word and subjects like sin that will help us to anchor our belief system firmly to the foundation of real truth? So that what we believe and what we teach is the life-saving gospel of Christ. And this is really important today. And this is especially important today. Last week after um, 
the message, uh, Sarah Howard sent me a text about something that, that she had read uh, before the church. And, and she, when she read the quote, uh, uh, it was by a lady named Beth Moore. And she forwarded it to me and said that, that she thought this was in line with what we were talking about. And after reading it, she's absolutely right. It is absolutely uh, in line with, with what we're teaching. But it's also really eerily pro- prophetic. Beth Moore says this. She says, you will watch a generation of Christians of Christians set aside the Bible as an, in, an, in an attempt to become more like Jesus. And stunningly, it will sound completely plausible. This will per, be perhaps the cleverest of all the devil's schemes in your generation. She says, sacrifice truth for love's sake. Okay? And you will rise or fall based on whether you will sacrifice one for the other. Will you have the courage to live in the tension of both truth and and love, and that right there is, is where we are in our postmodern culture, where where where, the, where where ideas like moralistic therapeutic deism flourish. We're at a, a place where people are setting aside the truth of the Bible. People are sacrificing the truth in the name of love. But understand, real love, authentic, real, sacrificial love, requires that we walk in the truth, that we live in the truth, and that we absolutely, unapologetically teach the truth. And the only way for us to courageously live and walk in the tension of both truth and love is for us to have a robust foundational theology that is rooted deep in the word of God. As we've said, and we'll say again and again and again, theology matters. Your theology, your understanding of God matters. So as a church, let us embrace the truth and reaffirm our commitment to teach and to learn this robust, foundational, life-saving theology. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, let us always have a thirst for the truth above our desire to be liked, about, above our desire to be popular, above our desire for comfort, above our desire for affection, above our desire to be accepted, above all other desires, let us desire truth, Lord. And let us be willing to stand firm and teach and proclaim the truth unapologetically. Not that we want to do this out of meanness or a mean spirit, Lord. We want to do this out of love because it is the absolute loving thing to do to tell people the truth. We must be willing to learn, and we must be willing to share and teach this truth. And Father, your truth is this, that we are broken sinners, unable to save ourselves, but that you and your grace sent your son to die in our place. And if we will repent and place our trust in him alone, we will be saved. And that then you then invite us into that truth to be able to go out and share that with other people. And I pray, Father, that you would put that on our hearts and that we would just accept it and we would grow in that and we would grow to know you better. But more importantly, it would turn into something that wouldn't be just knowledge alone that we're acquiring and accumulating, but it would be something that we would then apply by sharing our hope with the rest of the world. Lord, we, we lost an important member of our church family at 20 years old, how many, Lord, how many of us believe that we have another day? How many of our friends believe they have another day? How many of our, our neighbors believe they have another day? Lord, we're not guaranteed anything. Father, give us a thirst and a passion to go share that truth and, 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 and to be labeled as, 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 as dumb and to let us to be labeled as, as idiots and, 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 and intolerant and, and even let people call us names. 
Lord. But let us do it for your glory, Lord, and, and that ultimately, Lord, that you would pierce the hearts of those who need to hear it and that they would receive your word and be transformed by it, Father. Raise up this congregation as a group of people who are willing and thirsty for the souls of others to be saved. I thank you for that, Lord, and I pray, Father, that you're glorified in all that we say and all that we do. It's in Christ's name we pray. for listening. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. And please consider partnering with us financially as we share the hope and the healing of Jesus Christ with our community and with the world.